uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. How far out can you get? How far out can you get? That's the big question in television today. And CBS has the big answer. It's fabulous new series, Lost in Space. This is Alpha Control resuming countdown. We are at six minutes, 40 seconds and counting. Ladies and gentlemen, today the first of what may be as many as 10 million families per year is setting out on its epic voyage into man's newest frontier for colonization, deep space. And from all over the world, correspondents have gathered to voice their enthusiasm for this show that ventures farther out in concept than television has ever gone before. You can say it in any language. Lost in Space is a top-budget, top-quality show designed to dazzle the eye and ear with the most impressive production values and spectacular effects ever lavished on any TV series. We've put it on the launching pad for the new season in a trajectory aimed at the mass family market, appealing to every age group with entertainment as unusual as it is exciting. Countdown minus 10 seconds. Eight, seven, six, five, Four, three, two, one, zero. Blast off. Yes, we're taking off for the stars on a journey that no longer seems as far out and fantastic as it would have only a few years ago. For now, we live in the space age. Mr. and Mrs. Average American and all their kids have marveled at the heroic exploits of our pioneer astronauts. They're ready to project themselves into the foreseeable future with this family of space explorers. If you're wondering about a certain lack of animation in their expressions, it's because they've been frozen solid to survive the tremendous time span of travel to another galaxy. A journey interrupted en route when their ship is blasted by a barrage of meteors. Battered off course, they're drawn into the orbit of a mystery planet. Mr. President, status control on Jupiter 2. As of this moment, the spacecraft has passed the limits of our galaxy. It's presumed to be hopelessly lost in space.
Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side as always in the command center, and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode of Planet 8, Boys and girls, we're going to jump right into it. The classic science fiction television show, Lost in Space. This is not the Netflix version. This is the original from back in the day. Straight away, we'll kick it over to our chief engineer, Bob. What do you have to say about Lost in Space? What do I have to say about Lost in Space? Other than I love it. <laughs> um yeah, no, I definitely grew up with Lost in Space. In fact, being the old guy that I am, I did watch it when it was originally on in the 60s. I was only was like cool. five or something, but but I did watch it. In fact, just a side story before I get into anything. Uh, when we did the Sci-Fi X-Fest at the Bow Theater, we had Marta Kristen, who played Judy, as a guest. And when we took her out to dinner, I told her... Uh, and I think I told this story on our Halloween episode episode, but uh, I was watching Star Trek too at the time, and they got to the episode with the three witches, Cat's Paw, and they're down on the planet. Three witches are go back, go back, Captain Kirk. <laughs> Scared the crap out of me. I never watched Star Trek again until it came back in syndication, so I stuck with Lost in Space, and uh, yeah, I've. I always prefer Lost in Space mainly because, hey, there's more monsters and it was colorful and entertaining. And, you know, I always, always loved Lost in Space. Always wanted a robot. Haven't gotten a robot yet. <laughs> Maybe if I win the lotto or something. For, uh, when I win the lotto, I got to buy a Batmobile and a robot. Yeah. And my yeah. life will be complete. We were at the uh, Sci Fi Summit in Pasadena and they had like, Robbie the robot. They had a replica of Gort. I'm like, God, if I was a rich man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some guy, some friend of mine on Facebook. He's got Robbie, Gort, and B9, the Lost in Space robot. Jeez. And he's got like other, you know, movie robots as well. It's like a whole room of, you know, he doesn't have like all the toys and books and collectibles that we all have. He just yeah. has all these huge life size <laughs> collectibles. <laughs> He has actual freaking props. Yeah, it's very impressive. Uh, but anyway, uh, back to Lost in Space. Yeah. Yeah, so I know I back, like, in, back in the day, actually, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea was already on ABC. So mm -hmm. Irwin Allen had a little track record with sci-fi. And he uh, was interested in doing a version of the Swiss Family Robinson and he had his people looking into the rights. And it turned out Swiss Family Robinson, the novel, was in public domain. Hmm. Now, Disney had done Swiss Family Robinson a few years earlier, like in this, I think it was 1960. But supposedly, since it was in public domain, it was okay for other people to do it. Basically, Irwin Allen was pitching it to networks. And he hooked up with a guy named Guy Della Chopa. I think that's how his, his name is pronounced. And Guy was production partners with this little known comedian named Red Skelton. <laughs> and so Red Skelton was on CBS and 
when Guy brought Lost in Space to CBS, they didn't want to tick off Red Skelton. That was one of their big, big entertainers at the time. So they gave it a chance. But it was originally pitched as Swiss Family Robinson and then someone at the network, an unnamed person as far as I could see, said, hey, why don't we put it in space? <laughs> because back then, that was when people were glued to their TV sets and watching Gemini and all the rockets take off from Cape Canaveral and space was a big thing and we were just starting to explore it. So uh, they def- they started it off as Space Family Robinson before changing it over to uh, Lost in Space. I think Warren Comics had a... Uh, a version of Space Family Robinson mm-hmm. out before the TV show. So I was just going to say, I wondered if that was why the comics were called Space Family Robinson because they were going with that earlier. Well, yeah, well that was done before Lost in Space. Okay. In fact, I think there was like one issue where the the t- story title of the issue was Lost in Space, huh. but it wasn't predominant enough to, you know, it wasn't like trademarked or copyrighted or anything. So Erwin Allen was able to use Lost in Space, but that's why they changed it from Space Family Robinson is because of the comic. Well, they, they actually threatened to go to court. Uh, I was reading up in the fantasy worlds of Erwin, Erwin Allen. And because they had already done adaptations of the Twilight Zone, which was on CBS and some other properties, they worked it out because neither company saw a win in keeping it stuck in litigation they they could each have you know use of the name and you know make money and that's basically how they settled that yeah i think that's basically when the comic book changed over to lost in space still a different characters though strangely yeah but they did put like photos from the show on the cover to cash in on it Mm -hmm. but uh but yeah, so, you know, Alan, like I say, he had Voice of the Bomb of the Sea on ABC. And so he was able to get Lost in Space launched on on uh, CBS. And, you know, the first, oh, half or so of the first season was very much like old black and white sci-fi B-movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, say what you will. That was before the trinity of, of Smith- Will and the Robot, but there was a show probably around the time of the two-parter with The Keeper with Michael Rennie. That was maybe about halfway through the first season. Something happened on another network right at the same time as Lost in Space. Same night, same time. Pow, zap, zowie, Batman came on the air. And immediately kicked its butt in the ratings. Kicked all the all shows' butts in the ratings, basically. Batman was huge. And so at that point, Erwin Allen called a little meeting and said, look, how are we going to compete with Batman? And so they decided to go color. They decided to go camp. And that's when they decided to concentrate on the relationship between Will and the robot and Dr. Smith which was at its height during the second season. And the third season kind of went back to the family dynamic a bit. But still, you had all the crazy vegetables and everything else that were running around in the third season. So, um, But overall, like I say, I, I'm 
binging it leading up to this episode. I was enjoying everything just as much as I did when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, if you don't sit there and take it as serious science fiction, you know, take it as entertainment. It's it's great as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, yeah, I was like you, Bob. I well, I didn't watch it first run, but I loved Lost in Space as a kid. And um, it's interesting, you know. I I don't recall watching the um, the first episode, the uh, the pilot episode. It seemed long um, as far as an episode goes, but the pacing was good. I mean, they they touched on mummies and giants and and you know there was the big whirlpool in the middle of the lake and all this jeopardy but i noticed there was no robot and no dr smith matter of fact the ship wasn't even called the jupiter seven jupiter two or the jupiter two sorry it was like the gemini 12 i think yeah it was uh yeah that that was no, go ahead, Walker. But well, that was one thing that was kind of fascinating to me because I'm you guys know a lot more about Lost in Space than, than I do because I watched it, you know, occasionally on weekends. It wasn't on all the time like Star Trek was. And I don't really recall seeing the black and white episodes. I only really recall seeing color. And I hadn't watched I hadn't seen the pilot before we did, you know, prepared for the podcast. And, uh, yeah, there were a lot of changes between the pilot and the the series. And like you were saying, Larry, there was no robot or Dr. Smith in the pilot. And then, like, that pilot, yeah, it was just jam-packed with stuff, which, you know, got plugged in later into the later episodes. And uh, you could tell that the the pilot was designed to be a little more serious action adventure than the the series later wound up being. it was really interesting to see the pilot and see what they were doing with that and then to see how it shaped up later on um, and how they used, you know, what was in the pilot in the later episodes. Yeah, and I don't, the pilot never really showed on TV. It was uh, the first episode with Dr. Smith and the robot and when he sabotages the Jupiter 2 and off it goes. Um, that was the very first episode. Uh, however, Irwin Allen poured a lot of money into that pilot, knowing full well that uh, that Erwin Allen never saw a frame of stock footage that he didn't love and use. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever he poured into that first uh, pilot, which he got a ton of money to do, he knew he could use it. And he basically used parts of that over the first, like, six or seven episodes of Lost in Space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Uh, he definitely got his money's worth out of it. and uh, But he definitely, they needed an antagonist. You know, they needed some kind of back and forth drama, tension, what have you, which is why Dr. Smith was brought in. But, uh, you know, it was, say what you will, it was a smart move. Oh, yeah. I was reading that with Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, they had, um, you know, the props and the sets from the movie that they could utilize and, and, you know, it cut down on the, the cost of the TV series. They didn't have that with Lost in Space. And by virtue of it being in space, there was going to be a lot of expense that they had to mitigate episode to episode. Mm. Um, when they filmed the, the models of the ships flying around or landing, 
Those they filmed in color, knowing that they'd reuse them throughout the series. So he he was a very wise uh, person. He'd been in Hollywood for a number of years before Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and and Lost in Space. Um, he'd worked with Groucho Marx in, in some movies and Vincent Price. I, I was amazed um, reading about all the stuff that Irwin Allen did before Lost in Space. Obviously, the Towering Inferno afterwards and the Swarm and and whatnot, but he... Uh, a side adventure. He was, he was basically the master of disaster after his TV yeah. career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, another thing that I thought was kind of funny, I was researching this, and some of the actors that were under consideration for Professor Robinson, you know, in an alternate universe somewhere, there's a version of Lost in Space where mm -hmm. Professor Robinson was played by Eddie Albert. <laughs> they also had Michael Rene, Ronald Reagan was under consideration. <laughs> yeah, but it was spelled R-A-G-U-N. <laughs> Ray Milan, Lloyd Bridges, James Mason, Leslie Nielsen, um, Forrest Tucker, Hugh Beaumont, Richard Anderson from uh, Bionic Man fame, Steve Allen, Walter Matthau. <laughs> okay, that, that's just weird. Well, the key was that Irwin Allen wanted... Like big name people for the cast, right? Yeah, right. Angela Cartwright had done uh, Sound of Music. She was coming off the Sound of Music when she was cast as Penny. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, Bill Mooney had done Twilight Zone and a number of TV shows at the time. He, I think he even had a movie or two under his belt. Well, they um, knew they wanted him. There, there was yeah. no one else in consideration. He had a photographic memory. And he would read the script once and then just be able to boom. Yeah, no, definitely. Guy Williams was actually coming off of Zorro. Mm -hmm. He was like mm -hmm. a big hit with Zorro. So uh, that's when he got brought in. And even, um, well, Marta Kristen, she had a few, you know, I think she was like more novice, but she had a few roles under her under her belt. I and, think she uh, was in like some beauty pageants also and well, yeah. um, things of that but then again, Jonathan Harris, man, you, you catch him in episodes of a ton of things, you know, whether it's like Man from Uncle or Twilight Zone or whatever. He was in a lot of TV. Right, right. Well, it was funny. I mean, even Darren McGavin at one point was, was under consideration. Now, for Maureen Robinson, they were looking at Jane Wyatt, of course, June Lockhart, Barbara Billingsley, Audrey Meadows. And believe it or not, Kim Hunter. Well, well, that, until you get to Kim have... Hunter, those were all like established TV moms. <laughs> so, you know. June Lockhart was coming off of like 10 or 11 years or something on Lassie. Lassie. Yeah. I, you know, one thing that struck me is how, yeah, she was very, seemed very like dowdy. And she probably was supposed to be like in her early 40s. Um, but she seemed so much older and maybe it's just the way things were back in the sixties, but, um, yeah, there was just almost a grandmotherly nature to her. <laughs> yeah. It was really strange because, uh, Guy Williams, like you said, you know, he was coming off of Zorro. He was sort of much more of a, um, man of action and, 
it was an odd pairing to me in some ways. I mean, he they they had some chemistry there, but she just seemed much older to me in 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 some ways than uh, than he did. That's so. interesting. Yeah. Well, that was I think the key to that series was the entire family had chemistry. Mm-hmm. Unlike the 1998 movie that came out which was kind of the dysfunctional oh, Robinson that, family. Yeah. But um, I don't know if they were trying to make it more of a realistic family or whatever, but the key to the, the key to that show is the family and sticking together and mm-hmm. you know, the family unit type thing. Well, yeah, I agree. I you know. Interestingly enough, uh, Don West, some of the actors that were considered for Don West, Bob, did you know Nick Adams was <laughs> considered for Don West? Hey, no one cooler than Nick Adams. Right? I mean, I can see that. Well, and he was a hothead, so that would work. Well, he was coming off the Rebel. Mm. And that was actually a couple of years before he went to Japan to do Monster Zero and uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World. Right. Uh, they also had Roddy McDowell. <laughs> that I cannot see. I could see him for Dr. Smith. <laughs> I don't know about uh, Dean Stockwell. Hmm. Uh, Guy Williams was actually considered for Don West. Interesting. Kerwin Matthews, James Darren, Martin Sheen, oh. Burt Reynolds. Wait, wait, wait. So yeah. How old would Martin Sheen have been back then? Uh, I'd, I'd have to do the bath. I don't know. Well, it's interesting. He was in that Outer Limits episode, Nightmare, that we yeah, talked that's about true. a few. That's so he true. was he was a young dude. Guess he's older than I thought. Well, believe it or not, they also were considering a very young Bill Shatner for the role of uh, Don West. Oh my God! <laughs> well, you know, another thing I noticed in the pilot, um, Major West was his his background. He was introduced as like a scientist. And uh, he was, like, doing studies on, like, life forms or something, like a more biology. But then he became the pilot, like, of the ship <laughs> later yeah. on. And they didn't talk about him being a scientist anymore. Yeah, well, that was the original concept when Erwin Allen was, dry, was drawing it up, was that you had Professor Robinson and then Don West was his lab assistant, or you know. Mm-hmm. And they would – and they were basically – that's why they were both on the thing, but – yeah, you have to figure if if they were both, you know, scientists and his family's going, it's like, yeah, who's going to pilot that thing? Somebody's got to drive the ship and crash it every yeah. week. It was interesting, an interesting change. I mean, given the guy's demeanor and everything, it made more sense that he was a pilot and maybe a military man rather than a scientist because, yeah, he didn't carry himself the way you would expect maybe a scientist to. But uh, and then, you know, they had Professor Robinson do a lot of the scientific stuff after that. And then, of course, uh, you know, Will Robinson and Will could do anything. Yeah, he could. <laughs> the yeah, other thing well, I thought I mean, was it, it kind of started off when in War of the Robots when he found Robbie and he like or the robotoid. I know that was like, can I work on him, dad? Yeah, he's sitting there like taking the thing apart and cleaning it up and putting it back together and getting well, it ready. So this is a a thing about the show. So I'm I'm coming at it. I did watch it as a kid, but again, it wasn't like one of my favorite shows or anything. Although, you know, I liked the robot and all the explosions and crazy stuff. Um 
it, it really is like a show you appreciate as a kid, but then when you watch it as an adult, there's so many bad decisions and things that, you know, you would never do as an adult. You would never be like, sure, take apart that alien robot. We don't care. Or, you know, I mean, you would have, you would have immediately thrown Smith out an airlock or abandoned him somewhere. There's just like the decision-making is completely off, but it's in order to move this story into this, you know, fantasy wish fulfillment thing that's going on that every little kid is going to enjoy, you know? So when you watch it, or at least for me watching it at this age, I'm just like, this, this is insanity. It makes no sense. But you know, if you think of it as like a nine year old kid watching it, of course it's going to be delightful. Um, because it leads off into these crazy adventures. But yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. And especially more so later on in the show, the, the early part of the show, the first season is much more adventure oriented and a little more, you know, makes a little more sense. And then it just really, as further you go, the more it kind of goes off the rails into kid fantasy. Yeah. Well, like I say, once Batman hit, then all bets were off. They had to, uh, they went with the colorful uniforms and the crazy space monsters. And, you know, we talked about Erwin Allen never wasting a frame of stock footage a lot of times back then you would see a alien on a planet and lost in space and then they would paint it green, throw it under the water and it would be on the next episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. <laughs> so they definitely, and you know, I don't know if you saw any episodes where they have this big like spider creature. I, I think I saw one. I didn't see the episode, but I saw the lead in. Yeah, it was in the keeper and it was in a couple others. But that thing was also used in other. In fact, it showed was it up, on Gilligan's Island. It showed up on Gilligan's Island in a cave. When That's he, what like, I thought. He had to throw that pigeon or dove or whatever at the yes. spider. Same problem. That creeped me out. And then there was also another episode with like a bipedal dragon, which showed up in an episode of Batman when Batman comes out in the dragon suit. I think it was what it was the Egghead episode. And he comes out like a dragon and everyone's like, ah, and he takes his head off as Batman. That was the same suit as the one in Lost in Space. Well, the the carrot suit um, that they had in Lost in Space, um, Wilbur was having a nightmare over on Mr. Ed and uh, this huge carrot. No, just kidding. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, moisture. I need moisture. <laughs> but they had some really nice, like every time uh, they showed the Jupiter 2 flying especially when they were either coming in for a landing or taking off on a planet the effects with the little spinning propulsion thing and everything it looked so cool i it was always like when i was doing the review for this i was trying to find those episodes where they were showing you know where they weren't just planet bound where they were taking off from a planet or something because uh, those effects were really nice really good mm -hmm. You know, they had some some good effects. Oh, yeah, no, from the I always time. loved the Jupiter two. I always loved all the me mechanical stuff in there. Whether it's the Jupiter two, or it's the Chariot, or in the third season they had the space pod, mm -hmm. and of course the robot. But uh, my friend Bill Winkler, he lived up in Woodland Hills, down in uh, up above Hollywood, and he peered over his fence one time, and his neighbor had this old snowplow. In his backyard, it was all like rusted and 
busted up and he asked him where he got it. It was the chariot from Lost in Space. And he was going to try to restore it and put it into car shows and stuff, but they never got around to it. But, but yeah, I just think, you know, you're in your backyard, you look at your neighbor's yard and, oh, hey, it's the chariot. That would have been cool. <laughs> the thing that was always perplexing was how all that stuff fit in the Jupiter 2. Because, you know, it, it was apparently bigger on the inside than it looked on the outside. <laughs> well, the Jupiter 2 was a lot like like the teepees in old Bugs Bunny cartoons. <laughs> where it's like a little teepee and they go inside and it's this big, huge place. Or, or Arabian tents in the old the movies. And, yeah. Same like the uh, elevators on uh, Discovery. Oh, let's not go there. I I I can't even. I just wait till we do our Discovery episode. Oh, I just the pain, the pain. Elevators floating around pain. the ship. Well, I tell you, but, when when I was a kid, I loved the robot, and I, you know, I would get these hand-me-down clothes from some of my older cousins, and I remember having this jacket, and the sleeves were longer than my arms, and my mother got a call because I was running around the play yard all day, warning, warning, Will Robinson, shaking my arms up and down. He's <laughs> very disruptive. Yeah, it's funny. I was going through old photos. And uh, there were a couple of photos of me with these shirts I had back in the 60s that they were kind of like V-necks, but they had like a collared shirt underneath, <laughs> you know, like, you know, attached to it. But it wasn't like yeah. a button down shirt. It was like, you know, with a zip. And I remember vividly that I always wore those because of Lost in Space. In <laughs> I fact, I wore, a lot, I wore a lot of turtlenecks, too, because of, uh, of uh, <laughs> what was it, James Darren in, uh, in Time Tunnel. <laughs> well, there you go. So, um, yeah, the the robot really, really grew on me. I mean, I'm sure it did for a number of uh, kids who watched that show. It was the voice of Robert May, and it never really hit me as a kid. But he's also the narrator for the episodes, giving us a recap of what uh, happened. Hold on, hold on, rewind. Danger, danger! It was Dick Trufeld who did the voice of the robot. Oh, he did the voice. Bobby May was inside the robot. Oh, see, I thought it was the same guy. No, 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 no. Bobby May, little short guy, he was inside oh. the robot. And Dick Trufeld, who narrated, he also narrated some of the other Irwin Allen shows. Okay, uh, okay, my yeah, bad. He was, he was the voice. And, okay, uh, all right. My uh, yeah. apologies then. But um, uh, the... Uh, the B9 robot was designed by the same guy who designed Robbie the robot for yeah, uh, Rob Kinoshita. Planet, right? Rob Kinoshita. Yeah, he did both Robbie and B9. In fact, Robbie's in War of the Robots, and then he returns again in, uh, I think it was Prisoners in Space, where uh, they go onto this prison ship, and there's all these prisoners there, and the guard of the prison ship is Robbie. Yeah, I saw that one. That one was like, interesting for a lot up, of right? reasons. Yeah. So, yeah. So, no, it's very cool. Yeah, it's cool. I guess if you created something, you'd say, hey, we need a robot for this. Well, let me just grab my previous creation. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, he showed up in, what, The Invisible Boy? And I think he showed up in, like, an episode of Buck Rogers. I mean, Robbie made quite a few cameos over the years. He was in The Twilight Zone also. Yeah. 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 
So the, the robot at first was called the environmental control robot. Right. And I guess he was supposed to be there to help them, like, analyze planets they would go to or something. There was this episode I saw, and out of his leg or foot, this little probe came out and picked up a sample of dirt. Oh, yeah. So they but then, him for... That didn't seem to, like, follow through the rest of the no. show, though, right? Yeah, they, I think it, just I think it only kind of did that utility. once. What's that, Bob? I think he only did that once. Okay. He did have a tube that popped out and blew out, like, smoke a couple times. Like, do a smoke screen type of thing. Hmm. But. Yeah, maybe. that went, that went the way of the dodo as the series moved forward. No more uh, soil samples, no more analysis. <laughs> oh, he had he other things of... to do, like playing guitar and yeah, <laughs> right. I posing Dr. Him. Smith down in the shower or whatever. Yeah, well, yeah, I did see him sing and play guitar at one point. But yeah, he sort of kind of seemed to become like a Batman's utility belt. And he had everything, like if they needed something, he was able to manifest it. He was Um, a uh, Swiss Army robot. Yeah. (laughs) What was interesting to me was to kind of see, like sometimes you could tell they'd film him mostly from the waist up and you could tell that the, the person was walking, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then sometimes you could tell it, he was on the treads. So you'd see a full body and he'd be on the treads. And there was even a time where he was sitting on a rock. So you could see the legs were like bent, but that was the only one time did I see him sitting like that. Well, yeah, there was also, uh, I think it was in the keeper where he's like digging a trench and he's like, it's like squatting down somewhat. Huh. But there was also, I can't remember, it was one of the episodes that Debbie and I watched last night. And I had to pause it and, re- and scan back and show her again. Because usually when Bob May would not have the treads on and he'd be walking, you know, they either just shoot him from like the knees up or they uh, have the robot behind some rocks. But there was one scene where he was behind rocks and as he walked, the rocks got a little too low and you could see Bobby May's legs sticking out of the bottom. <laughs> Just like, you know, maybe a few inches of his legs. But I had to rewind and go, look, check this out. <laughs> well, they were saying there were times where they'd be pulling him by a rope, you know, so that the robot looks like he's moving across the, you know, planet scape. And yeah, you would say it was like a 275 pound suit, and he fell over once getting pulled, you know. And yeah, he was going like up the ramp into the Jupiter 2, and it was a little too steep, and he just fell backwards. Oof. Yeah. I mean, the thing cost almost $40,000, and that's 1965 money, you know. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but think of all the marketing they got out of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've more than made their money back on it. You know, uh, I wanted to say too, Karen, and Bob had made mention of Batman and and they kind of made it a little more campy. I didn't know this, but when they were early on in the production back in 1965, they brought in Buck Houghton from Twilight Zone to give it like more science fiction than fantasy. And apparently he and Irwin Allen bumped heads and... Erwin Allen won out because it went from more science to less science 
Hmm. By they by the time they hit the second season, tail end of the first season, really. Well, I mean, it, it, it was basically going in that direction to begin with, and it would, be, it would have been interesting to see if they stuck with that direction throughout all three seasons. But or would it have made three seasons? Was it the camp that kept it going? Yeah, that's the thing. I remember I forget which episode, but I remember uh, Mrs. Robinson was washing clothes and she had a clothes hamper with dirty clothes. And she throws it in this uh, washing machine. And I was like, oh, that's so like futuristic. Look at all the lights and stuff. And not even a second passes. And she opens up the washer and everything's like wrapped up in plastic and put on hangers <laughs> as she pulls out the clothes. And I'm like, OK, never mind. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's an episode later on, too, where she's making them new uniforms. And I think she's using the same machine. And she's like programming it and these little uniforms pop out. I think Judy got the first one. Well, some of it was just totally fantasy. I mean, I haven't watched all the episodes, but there were a few where like, like Will's reading from this book about the antimatter universe. This was the, the antimatter man. And it, it was sort of mm. to me like a, a, a mashup of like Star Trek episodes, the, the alternative factor and the enemy within you know, because because uh, Will's reading from this book about like a alternate evil universe and it sort of just manifests. It's it's almost magical how it kind of like happens, um, almost like it's a evil book or something. And <laughs> I don't know. But then, you know, evil John Robinson appears and he's in uh, like a black and white uniform and. And it reminded me of, yeah, the Star Trek episode, like with the Lazarus, you know, Lazarus. Ah. Yeah, yeah. But it was kind of cool. They had like a way to go to the dimension on like this sort of cloudy little walkway. Like conveyor belt. Yeah, it was crazy, but it was yeah. sort, of evo sort of evocative. And, and uh, yeah, then the, even the robot meets his evil self. And, it, you know, and the colors are reversed and like the his goody, light goody. is green and. <laughs> What's that, Bob? So you're the goody goody one. Yeah, it's like you're the goody. It was but, just. It no, was I mean like, that's one of my favorite episodes. That's why when we spoke earlier, I said when you guys get to season three, watch the Antimatter Man. Yeah, it was. It was, but you know, it's it's definitely got a strong. It's more a fantasy, like a science fantasy element than you know, or a fantasy. I would call it more a fantasy element than science fiction. Um, but yeah, it just goes off into like wild adventures, you know, which I can see why like as a little kid, you, you're going to love it because it's just anything you can imagine can happen. Right. That's what they tried to do with the stories. Uh, you know, Buck Houghton, I'd said they brought him over from Twilight Zone. At one point in time, one of the arguments he had with Irwin Allen was trying to get Arthur C. Clarke to come in and work on some episodes. <laughs> But he was working on Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, so he, he yeah. wasn't going to come on. Even as a consultant, they're like, well, he can consult. And everyone's like, nah, I got stories. We don't need him. <laughs> well, it's not funny just, because. He's going to have a Ouija board, see? And when he <laughs> touches the Ouija board. <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, when Peter Packer brought the script in for the Great Vegetable Rebellion. He gave it to everyone and he gave it. Jonathan Harris had a story where Peter Packer handed him the script and said, 
read this script and I don't want to hear anything about it. <laughs> and he read the script and he told Peter Pack, he goes, this is the worst thing I've ever read. And Peter Packer's like, I don't have another goddamn idea. <laughs> it was like towards the end of the series. He's like, I don't have any other goddamn ideas. So there you go. Oh, God. But they all talk about the Great Vegetable Rebellion and the fact that if you watch the episode, there's times when parts of the cat, you know, some of the cast are like looking in another direction or they kind of put their hand over their mouth or something because they're all cracking up because they're talking to this big carrot or. Dr. Smith became a celery stock or whatever. And, yes. you know, I it was just like last night. Try, trying to keep a straight face while they're doing this. And it, the but funny thing, know. too, is when we had Marta as a guest at the Sci-Fi X-Fest, it came time for me to take her back to the airport because she had to go. Her flight was going. Her flight was leaving. So I, I walked in. I'm like, Where, where's Marta? Oh, she's in the theater. Okay. So I go in to find her. And she's sitting watching the Great Vegetable Rebellion on the big screen. <laughs> but she probably, you know, she's probably seen it on TV screens. She probably never saw it in a movie theater before. So she's watching the Great Vegetable Rebellion, and I leaned over. I said, hey, it's time to go to the airport. She would not leave. She would not move until that episode was over. Oh, <laughs> man. So it's like, you know, they all say they hate it, but they all enjoy it. They all crack up when they watch it, so... Well, I will say, I mean, obviously it's one of the more memorable episodes, but I was fine with it as a kid. I'm like, oh, okay. And he needed moisture, of course, you know. Um, and then it was one more reason for me not to eat my vegetables. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, because that's one. I think Dr. Smith, like, looks at Tybo at one point or looks at one of them and goes, Oh, I love vegetables. I would never, you know, I love them. I, they, they taste so good. And suddenly it's like, he's eating vegetables. <laughs> right. The, the, again, the competition with Batman and, you know, later on Star Trek and stuff. But I know we were talking about the uniforms, uh, some famously worn by Bob when he was a youth. Of but course. they would use <laughs> primary colors and assign those colors to the kids. And someone had asked uh, Erwin Allen's widow, why, why did they pick those colors and she said Irwin knew that kids loved primary colors and some colors were stronger than others so the adults got those colors and the kids got those colors and they just went with it and on some level I'm like god you know it worked I never questioned it but you, you just kind of knew Penny and Will were the kids and Don and and you know Professor Robinson were the you know providers or you know the men i mean this is back in the 60s it's it's interesting how nothing was really done by mistake they they really knew and again you have to credit erwin allen he had a very successful career up to the swarm but that's another conversation <laughs> well we, um, we spoke before on the podcast about the pink and purple and green hallways in star trek uh -huh. and you know back then like i say color was just coming into tv Mm -hmm. And it was like, well, if we're going to go color, let's go color. You know, oh, yeah. Everything was, you know, and of course, Batman with like the purple suit of the Joker or the green jumpsuit of the right. Riddler or whatever. They were embracing, totally embracing color. So when you got to Lost in Space and they were trying to kind of emulate Batman to compete with it. And yeah, that's why the uniforms are suddenly 
purple and orange and green and you know i think third season they kind of went back to the silver jumpsuits for quite a few episodes. a little bit yeah but uh but yeah no they still had the really colorful attire well and karen wasn't it, uh, it i think it was a star trek convention it could have been where they were asking about you know the bright colors on star trek and i don't know if it was jimmy doohan my memory fails me but they were saying that when star trek came out that's when colored televisions were being oh. sold yeah well this is in a number of books and and other sources it's it's pretty well known that you know they wanted to sell televisions right so they had they kind of uh the networks had deals with the tv people you know okay we'll help you sell your tvs we want our shows to be successful so that's why you know when they went from uh the original pilots to the the series everybody's uniforms suddenly went to much brighter colors right and that's where we got the the red and the blue and what was supposed to be a sort of avocado green but when when you saw it on your tv became the gold command uh color right so yeah everybody got you know bright primary colors everybody uh, wanted to buy a color tv yeah, you know, you've got to show those colors off. And the same with, you know, why is the lighting the way it is? Well, some of it's, you know, for mood, but some of it's also to show, you know, bright colors on the ship. The ship was mostly, you know, a grayish, gray, blue-gray color. So you've got to show colors in different ways. And uh-huh. Splash some lights on there. Get out the yeah. gels. So. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. so talking Lost in Space and Star Trek, what do you think? face-off between John Robinson and Captain Kirk? Oh, well, I, I'm super biased, so. <laughs> I don't know. I think John Robinson could hold his own in most of the fights well, he's in. If if John Robinson had his rocket, maybe. Maybe. But without the rocket, I mean, Kirk had those karate chops and those half kicks down pack. Um, I'd, I'd have to go Kirk. What do yeah, you say, Kirk, Bob? Kirk, Kirk, yeah, but John Robinson, trained. man, he, you know, he had all those years under his belt as Zorro. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things I'll say, though, about great television leaders, they always relied on their people for their strength. You know, that ultimately they'd make the decision and the sacrifice. But Robinson had his family and, you know, Don and, and Dr. Smith. And, uh, you know, Kirk had the the big three on the Enterprise, him, McCoy, and, and Spock. So good leaders both ways. So let me ask you guys this. Uh, before we started recording, Bob and I were talking about the music. He was playing some of the music for us to get us in the mood. And I had told him I spent a small fortune getting the La La Land 50th anniversary uh, box set for uh, Lost in Space. But John Williams, you know, Karen uh, got on the call at that point. John Williams did the theme song for Lost in Space. And then Bob was saying a lot of the uh, music for the... He did both of the theme songs. Mm. The second one, you know, when they got to the third season, they had the countdown. And that, I think, you know, when people think of Lost in Space theme songs, they usually think of that one Mm -hmm. more than they do the one from the first two seasons. I like that Uh one better. But yeah, he was basically Johnny Williams and he did a lot of the incidental music. In fact, if you, when you get into that La La Land set and you listen to a lot of John, Johnny Williams 
incidental mm-hmm. music for st- for Lost in Space, you can kind of hear Star Wars creep in here and there. I was going like to think he was kind of laying the groundwork, be... you know. And Did I you want to? I mean, I know you have copies of CDs, Bob. Did you want a copy of the La La Land? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. We're talking bootlegging here on the episode, so. <laughs> well, I, won't, I won't. I won't say. <laughs> but yeah, we're not. We're not. Uh, we're not doing anything yeah, bad. No, but I mean, there were there were other uh, there were other uh, people that scored start start uh, that scored uh, Lost in Space. Uh, it wasn't just Johnny Williams, but his are more of the more recognizable themes and incidental music and what have you. And I'm really uh, wondering, and you guys might know because you're more into star wars lore than i than me i always thought that the reason john williams scored star wars is perhaps because george lucas grew up with lost in space and maybe wanted him you know hey here's a guy who did lost in space or whatever yeah i know he did jaws and whatever before but um i'm wondering if that had an influence on lucas choosing him for star wars that's a good question. If if any listeners out there know George Lucas personally, we'd love to have him on Planet Eight. Uh, Ask him for us. Ha- yeah, yeah I, have- I feel like I should be able to answer this question, and I can't. And I, it makes me feel somewhat uh, ashamed of myself. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm he gonna, ever mentioned that in any interviews or anything. I, I need to go look that up. I know. I, I, will, I need to pull out all my books. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say I think the music is a highlight of the series and and really helps to accentuate the uh, the action and what's going on. I mean it it's it, it's amazing what music can do for uh, a show or a movie. I mean we know that like you see Star Wars without the music and then they put the music on it and you realize just how much it really. Um, builds emotion and and mood and everything and it's the same with this show it's like wow that music is so great you know that it just it caught me so many times where i would hear the music and i realized oh yeah i remember this music from when i was a kid i might not remember some of these episodes but like i'd hear the music and it would trigger a memory so well i mean secondary to the themes i mean the first i guess two seasons they would take a little clip from the beginning of the next episode and tack it on the end of the previous yeah. episode. And of course it would come up, you know, same time next week or whatever. And they'd have that. Yeah, that was John Williams. And then of course the third season, you had the countdown at the beginning, which always excited me as a kid. Cause mm-hmm. you know, some alien would pop up or, Dr. Smith would scream or whatever, and then you had the seven, six, five, four, you know, it was countdown and it right into the theme song. Very cool stuff. Oh, yeah. I was watching the finale, or the last episode, and uh, the robot was hooked up to that big magnet, and it was like three, two, one, da 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 And I was like, oh, it's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I, got t- had, I got tingles. It's they still had some. They had some really creative uh, opening credits, you know, with the animation and stuff. And I liked the I liked the credits where they had the uh, the family in their spacesuits on the umbilical. That was really clever. Um, and I liked the the countdown. The countdown is really exciting. I think I like that one because I like the theme more than the the other theme. 
But uh, they did some neat things with the, the opening. Well, the interesting thing with the credits is it was always guest starring Jonathan Harris mm-hmm. at the end. And that was because he felt if he couldn't have top billing, he wanted to be the last credit on the screen and he wanted to be differentiated in some way. So that's why they were like special guest star, even though he was in epi- every episode. He was smart. I mean, he, you know, they had written Smith, you know, he played it as the villain that first two or three episodes, but he's the one that brought the more comedic tone to Dr. Smith, you know, obviously working with Erwin Allen and the writers. Oh, yeah. And he knew his stuff. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I was reading, um, they were under consideration for the Dr. Smith role before they, you know, thought, well, we'll make him this kind of a character was Carol O'Connor. Archie Plunker himself, who and they said at the time he'd been in like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and he he'd done some television. He's more of like a chameleon type actor. He wasn't typecast as Archie Bunker yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that would have been interesting. You bubbleheaded meathead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, I've got a list here, and I'm not going to read everything. Uh-huh. But there's a you can look online. Just look up Doctor Smith robot insults, and they have all the different things he called the robot over the years. So it was like <laughs> addle plated amateur, arrogant automaton, bobbling bird brain, babbling bumpkin, of course bubble headed booby, uh, cackling cacophony. Uh, Calamitous clump. I'm just kind of skim, skimming through some of these. Disrespectful dunderhead. Well, Bob, you have to do it in a, in a Dr. Oh, no, Smith I'm not, I'm voice. I'm not do that. But uh, <laughs> there's quite a few. But, um, yeah, just, I mean, there's probably like a hundred different things he called the robot over the years. You know, it, it's, it's really interesting. It, and it played on me as a kid because I remember crying during certain episodes uh Again, I was watching. He insulted the, the, the robot. <laughs> yeah, well, the robot was going to sacrifice himself, and he was going to melt himself down. And I'm like, I remember crying my eyes out watching this as you know, a six year old thinking they're killing the robot. You know. Well, look at like War of the Robots, mm-hmm. where you know suddenly he's you know outdated and not of any use, and of course Doctor Smith is like emphasizing it to him. Yeah, I'm going to turn well, you into a pleasure vehicle and you probably won't be good enough was, for that. Yeah, he was telling Will Robinson, I love you, Will Robinson. You're my best friend. And it's like the robot has like emotions, which was way ahead of its time. I mean, it was a, a kid's show per se. But, you know, if you look at something like Battlestar Galactica where the Cylons were worshiping the one true God, you know, the concept of – when do you reach consciousness? And they didn't get into all that with Locke. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you might be stretching it a little there, Larry. <laughs> well, you know. well, he definitely was given more of a personality as things went by. War of the Robots is funny just because he's there with Will and he's like, I sense my enemy coming. And Will's yeah. like, the robotoid? No, Dr. Smith. Yeah. <laughs> this is the thing. I just, I, I know that Dr. Smith is like a high point for the show for a lot of people, but 
I just wanted to hit him in the head with a two by four. I, I just, he drives me up the wall. I'm like Don, you know, Don is like right on the edge of killing Dr. Smith almost every episode. Like he's constantly like telling Robinson, like, you're going to go back for him. You're going to do this. You're going to do why we should pitch him out the airlock. And, and I'm kind of like, yeah, Don is right. <laughs> Every bad thing that happens to him, they trust him. Like, okay, we're going to, we're going to test fire the engines. So Dr. Smith, we want you to press the green button, the black button and the red button. Can you do that? Oh, of course I can do that. Yes. It's child's play. <laughs> and then they, you know, they go off and they're like, okay, press the buttons. No, oh, it's the pink and the, green and, the, and he blows up the engine it's like they trust him to do stuff he always screws them over it's just like why why i just want to like strangle the man well there's one and episode just, where he has that can that he writes sos on and he records a tape he puts it in the can and he goes i saw to, that one last night yeah he yeah. goes to like shoot it out into space and he ends up like shooting the robot out with it yes <laughs> but He's but an even idiot. Like, the man is worthless. But even like earlier episodes, he was like pure evil. Because I mean, John Robinson's doing the spacewalk, and Doctor Smith has cut his line, so you know, set him adrift. I mean, he's basically trying to kill him. Yeah, I think he goes from yeah, he goes from like pure evil to like imbecilic. You know, evil. imbecilic yeah. evil. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the guy. Oh my God! Talk about the most irritating person on a genre show i think it's he like damien from the omen versus benny hill now in the omen <laughs> <laughs> but he was memorable well he he is memorable i'll give him that much they were saying that um you know the the character of of uh, major west would really like yeah, throw him out the airlock. He's good for nothing, no talent. He really did not like Jonathan Harris because he was <laughs> taking all of the scenes. So a lot of the disdain was not acting between these actors. I can believe it. Yeah, well, I mean, Marty Christian was telling us that uh, every year on Jonathan Harris's birthday, they get together and have lunch, right? Like the whole cast. Uh-huh. And when Jonathan Harris passed away, they would still get together on his birthday, but they'd have like a picture of him at the table. And I guess oh. he always wore these like scarfs and things. So they'd all wear scarfs and have a picture of him at the table and have lunch every year on his birthday. My dear man, it's called an ascot. <laughs> yeah, it no, no, it was not an ascot though. It was like a scarf. No, scarf playing. tucked in or something. That's Poor man's that's, ascot. That's the other thing though, is that, I mean, he, he comes off very gay. Um, they didn't, I mean, they didn't do anything. Obviously it was the sixties and everything, but his mannerisms and everything, uh, he's very flaming and it's just shocking that they, they did that back then, uh, you know, with a, a character on a show because it just seems so obvious now. I don't know what people thought back then, but, but watching it now, it's like, man, this guy is like a super queen. I mean, they, it's just I don't know. Just smack you in the face with it. Well, I think it was a different time. I mean, you're watching this, you know, back in the 60s, early 70s. No one's asking what Dr. Smith's gender pronoun is. You know, it wasn't really a thing. Uh, I know. But people, I mean, 
I don't know. I, I won't push the podcast in any direction, but it just is obvious watching it now. That uh, well, I mean, you know, if you look at Doctor Smith, he only really has one friendship on that whole spaceship. Oh yeah, and that's Will. Right. Yeah, you know, the robot was like you know, on again, off again. But you know, I think I think he'd be willing to sacrifice anyone on that ship for personal gain except for will i i think you're right i would agree with that um although he put will in danger a few times too on a number of occasions right right but you know he would try to go get help whether he went to go get major west or the robot or or whoever you know he he tried to write the wrong that was done he never intentionally went to like throw will out this airlock you know not that that's a redeeming quality. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big compliment. You're the only one on this ship I would not throw out an airlock. Yes, what's his what's his D and D alignment? Is it chaotic evil or? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let me ask you guys this: What happened to Bloop? Bloop was still there in the third season. I was stunned because I one of the episodes I was watching last night was third season. And they uh, they had to strap in for uh, landing on a planet, and Bloop was like in a cabinet. They just showed okay. like Bloop was closing the door. I, yeah, I didn't see Bloop in the finale. Well, see, she she Bloop, was Bloop. she was a Bloop, but that was not Debbie. her name. De- yeah, Debbie was her name. Debbie. Debbie the Bloop. Debbie the Bloop. Yeah, she yeah. also had a gig in. Um, oh, what was that gorilla spy thing? Not Matt Helm. That was. Uh, Lancelot Link, Secret Chimp. Lancelot Link, <laughs> Secret Chimp. <laughs> I, when I was a kid, because I've always been crazy about apes, I wanted to watch Lancelot Link, Secret Chimp so bad. And for whatever reason, my older brother Steve, my, my brother Steve does not share my enthusiasm for apes. <laughs> and so I would try to watch Lancelot Link, and there was some other show he wanted to watch at the same time, and he would be, this is stupid. And he would come in, and he would change the channel, and I couldn't watch Lancelot you know, Link. You can't beat the evolution revolution. Oh, man. <laughs> Did you end up buying the box set, Walker, and you watch it like several times <laughs> I have the it. year? I, uh, I have not. I will occasionally look at it on YouTube. I, um, I swear to God, Bob has the box set of almost everything. Everything. <laughs> well, you got to have Lancelot Link. I mean, come on. Yeah, I, I, I got to get that, actually. <laughs> hey, Mata. Oh, Lancey. Apparently, I'm going to <laughs> I'm gonna have to buy the box set of Lost in Space. My wife cut off Hulu. She's like, are you done watching Lost in Space? Yes, dear. Okay, I'm canceling Hulu. Okay, thank you, yeah. dear. Yeah, oh, I, thought, I thought you guys always latched on to all those pay services. Well, we're starting to cut down, you know, we're starting to make some change. And, and there's nothing really on Hulu other because I was like, do you have Hulu? She's like, oh, crap, I forgot to cancel it. I'm like, wait, give me three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Lost of Space Blu-ray set, I got to say, is every bit as beautiful as the Batman Blu-ray set. Oh, okay. Highly recommended. With all the colors and everything, watching it on Blu-ray. Holy smokes. And well, they got a lot of say- cool extras, too. In fact, did you guys watch that 2005 cartoon animatic that I posted on Facebook? Yeah, that was pretty neat. It was a it was like a pilot, like an animatic for a Lost in Space cartoon. You can find it 
listeners, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, just put Lost in Space Cartoon 2005 and it'll come up. If you don't put 2005, you'll get the 1973 cartoon, which is really bad. Mm. They had a pilot in 1973 and the only character, well, the robot was in it sort of, but the only character from the original Lost in Space was Dr. Smith, voiced by Jonathan Harris, but everybody else was different. And just really, you want to talk about limited animation. Oh, my God. The 2005 huh. pilot animatic thing, that would, I would have, I would own the box set now if it ever came out. It hmm. was, I thought it was really well done. Well, I'm going to have to check that out. I know the Batman box set came with digital as well as the Blu-rays. I don't know if Lost in Space Lost in, has yeah, digital. No, I don't think it came with digital. Mm. But it was the Blu-rays and, you know, each disc has extras having to do with whatever episodes were on that disc. And then there's a bonus disc at the end that has a bunch of interviews. In fact, Bill Mooney wrote a script for Lost in Space, like a revival of Lost in Space where, uh, Will Robinson's like in his 30s and they're all older and he he basically showed it to her or gave it to Erwin Allen and Erwin Allen's returned it unopened and said, I'm not going to read this because if I ever do a revival of Lost in Space, I don't want you to like sue me for stealing ideas or whatever. <laughs> oh, wow. But, I wonder if that... But they, on the Blu-ray, they do a table read of his script where they all come back, the whole cast is doing the table read, except June Lockhart isn't there. So uh, it was uh, Veronica Cartwright, Angela Cartwright's sister, Hi. plays our Maureen Robinson. And then Guy Williams' son does the Don Robinson huh. role. And uh, Kevin Burns, who was sort of the keeper of the Lost in Place flame all these years, he did Dr. Smith. Huh. And it's actually, you know, it's a cool episode. And they have the robot standing there and he does his own role. That's cool. I wonder if Bill Mooney, he wrote a song about Will Robinson and it's been 30 years and he's lost in space. Still yeah, lost that, in that's space. on there as well. Like the music video for that. Yeah, that's a very poignant song. Uh, a little depressing. But, but like the Ballad of Will Robinson. <laughs> the Ballad of Will Robinson, yeah. It was no. Well, it was nothing awesome. like Butch Patrick's. Uh, whatever. Whatever happened to Eddie? <laughs> uh, yeah. Talking about all these DVDs, Blu-rays, and box sets. It's that time in our podcast. Unless you guys have anything final to say about Lost in Space. Uh, was it midnight on MeTV on Saturday nights? Lost in Space. Watch Lost in Space. Support it. Right. Love it. Karen. Any danger, years? danger. <laughs> it does it not pain. compute. Pain. Okay, so it's time for our... Does anybody have a sensor sweep? <laughs> we didn't talk about it. Uh, crap, I don't really have anything prepared here. Quick, everybody look around their rooms. Oh, gosh. Uh, what do you I want just to assumed... Talk about? You guys uh, had something Lost in Space oriented for the Lost in Space episode, I guess. I got a bunch of well, Lost I'd in Space stuff. I already talked about but... the book. That's oh, right. that's right. Well, don't uh, you guys uh, have another, a different book on Lost in Space let, that you were using? Yeah, I had a different book. But let me, let me call up my Amazon purchases here. 
Yeah, yeah, there was one I was going to talk about a couple episodes ago off the top of my head because I didn't prepare this at all. You're going to have to re-cue this. Okay. No, Larry, I, do I, the, I really do leave the all this in. Again. This is good. This is gold. Okay. But, and uh, so it Mark, is time for our censor sweep portion of our podcast. This episode, censor sweep. Chief Engineer Bob, take it away. Hey. Mark Edlitz has written a book. And that book is The Lost Adventures of James Bond. Mm. And this, these are all projects that happened between the time Timothy Dalton left in License to Kill and Daniel Craig came on in Casino Royale. There were actually uh, three or four other Bond films planned starring Timothy Dalton that didn't get off the ground. There was also uh, James Bond Jr., which was actually a cartoon on uh, Saturday mornings for a while. And uh, there were other, there was like a, a musical, like a stage musical, and other forgotten 007 projects. All of these are covered in The Lost Adventures of James Bond by Mark Edlitz. And this thing, let me see if it has the page count on here. It's a pretty thick book. And uh, there's a lot of information in there, especially if you're, yeah, 425 pages. Wow. And it's like, you know, 11 and a half by, or eight and a half by 11 size. So if you're a James Bond fan and you, of course, listen to our James Bond episode, <laughs> uh, this is a book for you. It's basically all the things that would have, could have, should have happened with Mr. Bond. Very still- cool. It still ties in because it's lost adventures, and this is That's lost right. in space. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Going back to Moonraker, I guess. Very cool. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.blogspot.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8, signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end. Never fear. Smith is here. Less talk, more action, please. Silence, you ninny. Robinson, I'm 42 years old. I've seen the hot side of the sun, I've seen blue icy cold. I've shot the one-eyed giant down with laser in my hand. But I'll never see my home again, a walk on Earth's green land. In 1997, we set out on the Jupiter tour. Bound for Alpha Centauri, my family and small crew We ran into a meteor storm, the wrong time, the wrong place It's been six months and thirty years that we've been lost in space
died five years ago, there was no better man than he My mother's never been the same, and now it's up to me Our pilot is a handsome man, my sisters both could tell And Dr. Smith will get us killed, and that may be just as well Worked the mines of many worlds for fuel to power our ship. I've got a robot for a friend and helper on our trip. I'm sending out this message now from this ungodly place and hope someone will rescue us from being lost in space. Robinson, I'll never take a wife. No children will I father. I have no normal life. Show me mercy in this universe, or show me God's true face. Whisper my name to the stars, for I am lost in space. to the others for me. I will. Goodbye. Especially Will. Yes, yes, yes. Goodbye. Farewell, Dr. Smith. I detest drawn-out departures. Go and get it over with. Yes, get it over with. Yes. <laughs>